Well, it's good to see all of you who are present in the room and welcome all of those of you who are tuned in but aren't presently in the room. You're in your own room, perhaps online, or maybe you're in the room with the classic venue or in the room with the Moon Campus, wherever this finds you. Good to be together and welcome to all of you. Just a couple of things before we get into the message, a couple of things to make you aware of. One of those is that Pathway Church actually has a policy whereby a pastor at the church once they've been here at least seven years, can apply for and be granted a sabbatical. And uh, so Pastor Jason has been at Pathway 12 years already. That's gone fast. We've been uh, deeply appreciative of his ministry over those years. But obviously he's hit that mark and then some. And so he did apply for a sabbatical and has been granted that. And that actually began this week. And so Pastor Jason's going to be on sabbatical for most of the summer and uh, you can be praying for him. It's to be a time of refreshment, a time of, of thinking and dreaming, ministry, and having sort of the freedom from the normal responsibilities to lean into some things that uh, he's been desiring to do and uh, also just a time for... Uh, just refreshment as well. And uh, so we look forward to uh, praying him through that time. And uh, I'm sure that that's going to be beneficial to him and to his family and to all of us all at the same time. The other is we are coming right to the end of our fiscal year and we always try to close well when we get there, financially speaking. And uh, we've told you that we had a bit of a hiccup in that because there, there are about $55,000 worth of HVAC expenses that have just popped up kind of all of a sudden and uh, so we're trying to meet that need and we put that need out to you and we've been asking you to prayerfully consider how you might respond and uh, be a part of helping us accomplish uh, meeting those needs and so if you would please continue to be prayerful about that. I'm sure that some of you have already come prepared to address that or already have and uh, we just want to say thanks to you for doing that but uh, however God would lead you in that we would be very much appreciative. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is good to be here. It's good to be in your midst. We, we recognize your goodness and your leading and your faithfulness. We pray for Jason as he is on sabbatical here for this summer, these summer months and just ask that you would bring refreshment to him. We ask that you would just bring inspiration relative to how you're leading him to lead us. And, and uh, we're just excited for this opportunity for him and as we come to the end of this fiscal year, Lord, we just pray that as a family, as we have these family responsibilities to meet, that we together would, would step up and get this done. And Lord, now as we look into your word, we pray that, pray that you would lead us and that you would guide us, that we might know your mind and that we would know how you would be leading us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So today, we are going to be talking about getting down to basics. Getting down to basics. The title of this message is The Basics. And you would tend to think that the, the basics in any of a number of realms are pretty much just understood. I mean, that's why we call them The Basics. So when it comes to something like uh, the TSA and the screening process at the, at the airport, there are some basics, and we all pretty much know those. You know, you can't take a knife through security, and you can't take fluids more than 3.4 ounces, and that toothpaste is considered a liquid. That was one that tripped me up early on. I had a problem with that particular 
particular one, but we all know that there are certain basics, but the TSA reports that there are, are people who have tried to bring through other things as well. They should have known that they weren't basics that you could just bring or get through. And so they report every year, they put out, they publish a list of, of the top 10 things that they have caught at uh, the checkpoints across the country. And they publish it and they, they try to do it with a little spirit of, of humor and of, of some fun as they post those things. So they posted this picture of this cleaver. This is one of the things that they stopped in 2021. And they posted, as they showed this picture, this, this word, it said, it's not a cleaver idea to bring this through security. Or someone tried to take through this chainsaw, not check it in their luggage, I mean take it through in their, in their carry-on baggage, right? They tried to do that and they posted, you can't stump us. I didn't say they had a good sense of humor, I just said they tried to be humorous with it. Or one more, somebody tried to sneak through this ammo in this deodorant tube and they wrote this, they said, uh, the person trying to get this through must have been sweating bullets. <laughs> right, I think that one's a little bit better, but nonetheless, I kind of feel like I don't want the TSA to try to be funny. I want them to be serious. I mean, don't you think? Wouldn't you agree with me in that? I think maybe so. Well, today we're going to be talking about some basics, not of the TSA. We're going to be talking about some basics in some other realms of life, and one in particular, which is the relationship that we might have with Jesus Christ. What are the basics of what that might or what that really should look like? So, what we're going to be talking about. The Apostle Paul is taking up that consideration as we come into the text we're looking at today, which is Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We're flying along through Romans and, and we've made it to this point and uh, we're going to keep pressing on all the way straight through this uh, book and I'm excited about that. You can use your scripture journal if you have it with you. If you didn't, never got one of these scripture journals or you've come since we've been talking about that a lot, they're available out at the information center after the service and uh, you can pick one up and be in it for the last half or so of this book or just open your Bible and you've got the outline there in the pathway notes or if you don't have access to either of those things, you can just Google Romans 10 and uh, it's going to come up for you and you'll be able to follow along there as well. It's also accessible through our app. So anyway, Romans 10 is where we're going to be. Now we've been in this series where we've been taking a look at the book of Romans and it's been rich and it's been full and Paul has been helping us out along the way. He's writing originally to a group of people in the church that had been established in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And the people who were there in that church were a pretty eclectic group of people. They had come from a number of different religious backgrounds and Paul is trying to bring them together to help them to understand the basics of what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. He wants to try to get them all on the same page. And so when we come to Romans chapter 10, there's some things specifically he wants to make sure to communicate to them as it relates to faith in Jesus Christ and what a relationship with Jesus really looks all about. In chapter nine, he was talking about God's role in election and God's sovereignty. Well, now we turn the page to Romans 10 and he's focused a good bit more on our role 
and what we ought to do and what we need to do to respond to what God has done on our behalf. And that's what we're gonna be looking at. And the fact is, he's just trying to kind of lay out the basics. And if you've ever struggled with trying to figure out or sort out what are the basics of faith in Jesus Christ or what does it take to become a believer in Jesus Christ or am I, am I where I should be or if there are doubts that pop up in your mind where you're like, am I in or am I not in? I'm not completely sure. This is a great time to be here because he's gonna, he's gonna point some of that out for us and this may be very clarifying for you and maybe even for a first time you'll be able to grasp and lean into what God would be calling you and inviting you into and to do. So that's what this is talking about. Paul's desire is that we'd be clear on what the gospel consists of so that we can experience its depth, so we can experience its blessing. That's what his desire has been all the way along. And you can see it here again as he launches into chapter 10. And if you look at verse one, you can see what's on his mind. He writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now who are they and, and them? Well, he's talking about his fellow Jews. And he's had them on his mind. They were one of those groups that were a part of the church there in Jerusalem. Some who had come into faith in Jesus and some of whom hadn't. But he's saying my prayer for them, those who haven't come into faith, is that they might be saved. This is something he very much desires for them. These are people who've been given tremendous spiritual privileges. We looked at what many of those were. He lists them for us back in chapter nine. And he says there's a lot of spiritual privilege, but the, the problem was that they used that as, as a means to just sort of gain a degree of feeling superior to other people. They used it for a sense of self-righteousness instead of allowing it to soften their hearts to draw them into relationship with Jesus Christ. It just puffed them up and it sort of blinded them to the truth. And Paul wants them to understand this. So he, he says that I am, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Notice Paul's response to their lack of faith. It says that he is praying that they would be saved. Again, last week we talked about God's sovereignty and we talked about election. And there are many people who would say, well, because of that, God has already determined who is going to be in faith and who's not. And so there's really no need to pray because God has already got it all figured out. And it's already decided, it's already determined, so let's not pray. But fact of the matter is Paul doesn't feel that way and Paul's the one who's teaching us about election. He's the one who's teaching us about God's sovereignty. But he believes he should be praying. He is praying himself. He knows that God's sovereignty doesn't dismiss the effectiveness of prayer when it comes to the lives of other people coming to experience salvation. And so he says, I'm on my knees, I am praying for them. I know that that is effective, just as it is for you and me. Whether you're praying for a son or a daughter or a parent or a friend or a coworker, we should be on our knees because Paul's saying it makes a difference when it comes to them coming into faith in Jesus Christ. You need to keep that in mind. Who is it in your life that you need to renew prayers for that they might experience salvation. So keep praying or start praying, whichever the case might be. And with that, Paul's going to jump into the basics of salvation in Christ. But before he helps us to understand what the basics are, he takes a moment to help us to understand what the basics are not. There's some things that he wants to kind of pull out and get us to set aside because it was tripping up the Jews originally and can trip us up very much along the way. So he gets started by talking about what we're referring to, there for your outline, as empty zeal. 
empty zeal. This is what Paul brings up beginning in verse two. Look at it. It says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. When we think of having a zeal for something, we usually think that's a good thing because it expresses somebody has enthusiasm or somebody has excitement for something. Some of you have a zeal for golf. Nothing wrong with that. Some of you have a zeal for exercise. Nothing wrong with that. But some of you have a zeal for cats. And I mean, that's a different story altogether when you stop to think about it, right? Not all zeal is good zeal. That's what Paul's saying. He didn't specifically say cats, but he's thinking it as he writes this passage. I'm pretty sure of that. Well, Paul brings up that the Jews had a zeal for God also, and they certainly did. These are the ones who looked to the law that you find in the Torah, some 613 that were written down that they say we need to follow all of these laws and then they went and they added some other laws and then they added this legalistic um, pursuit of them to the point where they actually made rules to help them to keep the rules. I mean, that's how serious they were about this because they believed by keeping these things, by keeping the law, that they would have favor with God. That's what they're trying to accomplish. So they have a tremendous zeal for the law, a tremendous zeal for trying to find favor with God, which is very interesting here because their zeal was focused on earning God's favor through their behavior rather than receiving what God had provided for them just through grace. And that's where the problem lies here, and Paul's trying to point that out. Zeal alone wasn't enough. It needed to be in the right object. You needed to place it in, they needed to place it in the right place, which was in Jesus and faith in him. And we have to watch out for these same dangers because it's easy to be zealous about all sorts of things these days. And if you look around you, it seems that people are getting more and more zealous all the time, right? Because zeal sells. Zeal gets likes. Zeal gets reposted, but zeal can also be very deceiving. When we feel strongly about an issue and we raise that flag, sometimes we consider that to be a form of righteousness, especially for people who are in the church because a lot of times the circumstances that we get worked up about are things that somehow touch or have spiritual components to them. And so we feel that if we are all worked up about something that touches spirituality, then it must be right. And the more zealous we are, the better. But sometimes that zeal gets expressed in ways that isn't right. It's not helpful. It's not wise. Remember the Jews were religious and their zeal for God did nothing but take them off the course and it resulted in arrogance on their part. This is their zeal for God resulted in arrogance. It resulted in hatred. And all the while they felt themselves to be righteous and empowered in the center of God's will, but they weren't. If you just think about it, as you look back, religious zeal has led people through the ages to be violent and judgmental and bigoted and angry and intolerant. You can see it over and over and over again, and it's no better today. In fact, it might very well be worse today than it has been in many stages in the past. 
When I see the things that are posted on places like Twitter and Facebook that condemn and dismiss and alienate, that are written by people who are claiming the name of Jesus as they do so, I think to myself, it's no wonder that there are whole groups of people that don't want anything at all to do with the church or to do with Jesus. That's not the heart of Jesus and it's blasphemous to suggest that it is. And to use that as as an element to try to convince other people because we name the name of Jesus in the process. We need to consider where is our zeal going forward. Look, zeal for God is great if it's zeal for God and not zeal just for a personal cause or a personal interpretation or a personal agenda. The Jews' zeal was for self-benefit under the guise of of following after Jesus, and all it ended up being was harmful, not helpful. Paul says they're operating out of ignorance, and we will be too if we elevate personal zeal over biblical truth. We need to examine where we are and the things that we're fired up about and the zeal that we have in our hearts and make sure that it is in step with where God would ultimately have us to be accomplishing God's purpose, not just allowing us to get something off our chest. Empty zeal is the place that he starts, but he doesn't end there. He goes on to help us to understand some of what the real faith or what the basics about faith in Jesus really are all about. And so he goes on then, secondly, to talk about real faith. Real faith. In the next several verses, Paul tries to make putting your faith in Christ as straightforward as possible. He starts out by quoting from Deuteronomy 30. In fact, we're going to see him dip into Deuteronomy 30 a few different times here as he makes his way along. Back in our text in Romans 10, we pick it up in verse 5. He writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. That's what the Jews were trying to do. They had this zeal for following the law, but there was no life in the law. That's what he's saying. There's a better way, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. He is saying that in order to put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to go searching for him. Really? No, you don't need to go searching for him. Gaining faith in Jesus Christ is not like hide and seek where you need to go and if you search well enough and you find him, then you win the prize. That's not what it's about at all. That's not how it works. The truth is that God comes to you. He seeks you out. You would never seek him out left to yourself. God is the one who is initiating that action. You're not saved because of your zeal for God. You can be saved because of God's zeal for you. It's not just that he's doing all the heavy lifting, it's that he's doing all the lifting, period. All right, so you might say, well, then what's our part? Certainly there's something that we need to do. We need to respond or something. So glad you asked. That's what Paul gets at going on verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Been looking for any memory verses? There you go. 
Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. Paul says our part in the salvation process is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the truth about the gospel, which is that Jesus died on the cross to take your sin with him, die on your behalf, take it out of the way so that you might have relationship with him, and then he rose victoriously over death, showing that sin and the grave had no power over him. That's the gospel. Said you need to believe that in your heart and confess that with your mouth, and you will be saved, is what he says. Now, there's been some confusion over that. People asking, well, okay, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So is he saying that there's two steps to finding your way to God? Are there two things that you have to do? No, that's not what he is saying here at all. These are two different expressions of the same activity. It's called parallelism. More specifically, in this case, it's called synonymous parallelism, where there are two things that are being said, but they're really just making one point. It would be like me saying, I only listen to good music. I never listen to country. See, those are two statements that are just making one very important and salient point, right? That's parallelism. Two statements, but just one thing is being communicated through doing so. As for Paul here, he's just saying that there are two different ways to confess one faith. A genuine belief in the heart is going to produce confession with the mouth. You can, mouth, you can actually reverse engineer this. You can ask yourself, okay, am I confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord to the people who are around me in my life? Is this something that I am want to do, is to speak up on behalf of the faith that I have in Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, I never confess with my mouth, then we need to do a bit of an examination of exactly what is going on in our hearts. Or what is it that we believe in our hearts, if anything at all, because here's the thing. A faith that you hide is a faith you've denied. A faith that you hide, nobody knows about it, you never share it, is a faith that you've denied. Some people wonder if it can just be this simple though, that we just need to believe and confess, and the answer is yes. But you might say, okay, but doesn't the Bible say that the demons believe? and it doesn't turn out so well for them. And yes, that's true, it does say that. And you might say, well, actually the last time I can really make, remember making confession of my faith was like when I was five at vacation Bible school. And so I'm not so confident in where I am in these particular days. Is there something else that I can do to kind of take a look and see where I am and if there's really faith in me at all? Well, if your belief and confession are genuine, you're going to know that because it's going to be proven real in the way that you live your life and the things that you do, in the way that you demonstrate the presence of the fruit of the Spirit being alive in you, is in, in you, is there love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, does that characterize you? You can check it that way, or J.D. Greer uses the illustration of sitting in a chair. When you sit down in a chair, you transfer the trust of holding your weight up from yourself into the chair when you sit. You move completely from trusting in you to trusting in the chair. You're no longer trusting in you while you're sitting in the chair. You're putting all of your trust and your hope there. You've surrendered yourself to the chair. And that's really 
how it happens when it comes to putting our faith in Christ and how you can know whether or not this is something that you have done because you put your entire faith into Jesus into what he has done. You're no longer resting in yourself. You're no longer resting in how good you are compared to your neighbor. You're no longer resting in all of the good things that you have done so that you might earn God's favor. You're no longer like the people, like the Jews, resting in following after certain laws or certain obedience to to demonstrate to God that he should like you, that he should put you in his favor. You're just simply resting in who he is and what he has done And when you're asked the question of what is it that gives you hope in Jesus Christ, it's the fact that it's all about him and it's not about me. There's no use in trying to put it in yourself anyway because there's nothing that you can do to accomplish it. And there's nothing you need to do to accomplish it because it's all been done on your behalf through Jesus and his work on the cross. What you need to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what he calls us to here. Paul continues in verse 11 to let us know who's in line to receive this blessing of salvation. He continues, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is offered to all regardless of race, education level, economic status, religious background, moral uprightness. It's offered to all, regardless of what your fears might be, where you feel guilt or shame or the degree to which you've walked apart from Christ for much of your life. Because what he says to us is this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how things have gone down in your life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes you. You don't have to walk around wondering, well, am I a part of the elect or am I not elect? Fact is, if you have a desire in your heart and you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. We just need to take it on the surface level. What is it telling us? And this is what he says. He's taking us back to the basics so that we might understand the essentials of what faith in Jesus Christ is all about, so that we might know, so that we might have confidence in moving forward. Greer again, the gospel is the most inclusive message ever given, resulting in the most inclusive community that has ever existed. Of course, that's not the way that Christianity is seen by many people. In fact, one of the criticisms that comes against Christianity is that it's too exclusive, that it says there's only one way, and that way is through Jesus Christ. And actually that's true. Christianity does say that, that there's only one way and that way is through Jesus Christ. But don't delude yourself. I mean, it's not that that other religious systems aren't making claims of exclusivity themselves. They certainly are. Everyone draws a line somewhere and says that if you want the favor of God or our higher being, then you need to do these things. And if you don't, then you're going to be excluded. Every system has that. It sort of has to by definition. But the thing is, there's something very, very different about Christianity and what that is all about. And that is because the gospel opens a door that nobody else, no other system opens. It's a door that anybody can walk through regardless of their present, regardless of what their past has been. Even crooks dying on a cross for their 
actions are ones who are invited in, who are included as they believe in their heart and as they confess with their mouth. It's based on Jesus and what he has done. So if you think about it, what made the gospel scandalous in the first century was not who it excluded. It wasn't that, oh, how can you do that? You're excluding all these people. What made it scandalous was who it included. There was a prayer that Jewish men would pray every morning. They would pray, dear God, thank you that you did not make me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. That's Jewish male privilege right there, by the way. Thank you that you didn't make me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. Which makes it really ironic and I think a bit funny. As Paul goes to preach the gospel, he ends up in Philippi and he's preaching the gospel and who are the first converts? Lydia, a woman. Then it says a slave girl. Then it says the Philippian jailer who was a Gentile. That would have messed with Paul's previous prejudices big time. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's beautiful what God is doing in that context. Talk about messing with his prejudices. It is only the gospel that leads to that sort of inclusivity. The gospel has produced the most demographically inclusive community that the world has ever known. Islam is still predominantly Arab. Buddhism is still predominantly East Asian. Hinduism is still predominantly South Asian. But Christianity is pretty much evenly distributed between North America, Latin America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And it's going strong. In fact, there are missionaries that are being sent from every one of those nations, every one of those continents, to all the other continents. Back and forth it goes. God is weaving a beautiful tapestry of believers in him all around the world from different races, different ethnicities, different people groups and cultures and backgrounds. That's the reach and inclusivity of the gospel. And all who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth will be saved. Those are the basics of real faith. It's where it's found. It's what's required, simply putting ourselves in the hands of God and receiving what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's real faith, the basics of real faith. Then he goes on. There's one more basic that he draws out here in this chapter, and we want to hit that before we're done, and it talks all about good news. The good news he has in mind has everything to do with the gospel message and how it gets to other people. Paul gets at it through a series of questions that he launches into here, starting in verse 14. He says, or asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a good question. If you don't have a relationship with God, how are you supposed to reach out to him? Verse 14 goes on. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? If they're not familiar with the truth about Jesus, how can they respond to it? Goes on. Another question, end of verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Essential to salvation is somebody communicating the message of the gospel. Yet another question, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now I know that Paul doesn't mean that literally because I preach the good news all the time and nobody wants to see my feet and they're not that beautiful, right? He doesn't mean this literally speaking, obviously, and you knew that. Besides, when he says this word preach, it means more than what happens here during a church, church service. It's what anybody at all does or is doing. The word really means being a herald. It just means what anybody does when they share the message of Jesus Christ. Their feet are beautiful in the sense that those are the instruments that carry the gospel from place to place. Paul's asking several questions here in these verses, but he's really just using them to suggest answers. The point is that believers in Jesus are in possession of the good news, which is great news, but if they don't share it, there will be no news, and that's bad news. All right, that's the way that it works. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've not just received the message, you've been sent with it so that others would hear, so that they might understand, so that they could respond and put their faith in Jesus Christ as well. All of us are preachers in that regard. All of us are heralds with that responsibility before other people. It's not enough just to be an example before other people. Well, they're they're gonna see what Jesus is all about just by looking at my life and the way that I live. Eventually you need to speak up, he says, or how will they know? How will they know the details? Comes not just through the way that we live, but the words that we ultimately need to speak. I've been around long enough now on this earth to have seen sort of the, so the pendulum swing back and forth in different types of evangelism that have been used. When I was a kid, I remember that uh, largely it was proclamational evangelism. That's where somebody would stand up in front of a captive group of people, maybe in a rally, maybe on a street corner. Could be anywhere really, and they proclaim the gospel message to a group of people, and God used that in wonderful ways, and many people came to faith in those days. By the time I was coming out of seminary or a little bit before, all of a sudden there was a move toward what you might call confrontational evangelism. This is where you would go find somebody, anybody, you didn't have to know them, and you would just share with them the gospel. Might be in a park, might be in a store, might be in the neighborhood, might be on a doorstep. I can tell you story after story after story of knocking on doors and trying to share the gospel message with the people who were there in that house. Of course, this was long long enough ago that uh, there weren't video doorbells and people actually answered their doors back in those days, unlike today, and you know what I'm talking about. Well, that kind of has transitioned now over to what we might call relational evangelism, or sometimes it's called lifestyle evangelism, where the emphasis is all about developing a relationship with that person or a friendship with that person, and then through that, you'll have the opportunity to share the gospel. The problem with that approach is that far too many people do the friendship part, but they never get to the point of actually speaking about the gospel message or inviting somebody to respond to the gospel message. And so it's all friendship, but it's no evangelism, and that has happened all around us. But if we want people to understand who Jesus is, they're not going to pick that up just through your life. They might gain an interest to hear, but if we never share, their interest doesn't make any difference. We have the best news imaginable. We have to be all about sharing it. 
And then as Paul finishes out this chapter, he quotes several times from the Old Testament showing how the Israelites had access to the truth about God, but they failed to believe. They failed to understand. It's not that they weren't hearing or they didn't have the message being spoken to them, but they weren't believing. And there are gonna be times if you are faithful to go and share with somebody else that it's gonna seem as though the message is falling on deaf ears. But that's okay. It's not your responsibility to get them to change and to turn. That's God's job. In fact, he's the only one that can do that. But it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility that they would hear what the message is. Now I know that there might be some reluctance on your part because you're afraid of what that other person might think or that they might not wanna hear it or they might reject it or they might reject you or they might form some other sort of opinion about you that they don't really want to have formed. But there's something in that that I think it's appropriate for us to stop and consider for a moment if we're concerned about the opinion of other people. You need to ask yourself, what would bring you greater embarrassment? Would it be them having an opinion of you that you live according to your convictions by sharing what it is that has changed your life dramatically? Or would you rather have their opinion to be that you have something that has dramatically changed your life but you're not interested in sharing with them what it is. It's that important, but not important enough, or they aren't important enough for you to actually share it. Which opinion do you want them to have of you? Who would be one person in your life? As you just stop to think about it and ponder it right now, who could use a word of the gospel from you. Just spend a moment. Who's that person? Would you be bold enough to write it down, jot it into the notes of your phone, say it to the person sitting next to you right now, that there might be some accountability to follow through? Could this be the week? It could be the week is the answer, but... Would this be the week that you would take that step in that person's life? Of course, the other question today is if you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Paul is expressing the basics, not just so that we would have some mental understanding and understand what happened in Rome and understand about the Jews and how they put their faith in the wrong thing. The basics of real faith are the basics of real faith. And what he says to us is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that something that you can say with confidence today is something you've done? Is that the position that you find yourself in today? is one who has the confidence that you have been saved, that you have been and are walking with Christ. If the answer is no or I'm not completely sure or I'd sure be interested in settling that matter, then you can right here and right now. And I'd invite everybody to bow your heads with me as we conclude The truth of the matter is that the gospel is really quite simple. 
We were in a position where we were headed for separation from God permanently, eternally, and God was not willing for that to happen, so out of his love, he sent his son Jesus to come into the world. The penalty required because of our sin was death, separation from God because he's perfect and he's holy and we're filled with sin and left to ourselves, our outcome is death, spiritual death, physical death, and separation from God. God was not willing for that to happen, so he came into our world. Jesus took all of that sin on himself, died in our place, so that it might be taken out of the way so that we could have hope in Christ. And real faith is about saying, I believe. I believe in my heart that Jesus died on my behalf, that he went to the cross, that he took my sin out of the way, and that he was raised back to new life. I believe that in my heart. And I'll confess that with my mouth. It's about the chair. It's about surrendering ourselves from trusting in ourselves to putting our faith and our trust in Jesus completely. It's one or the other. It can't be some of both. We can't contribute a little bit. We have to rely completely on what Jesus has done. And if that's not something that you're confident that you have done, then right now just tell God that you do believe and in this moment, you want to confess that he is Lord in your life, surrendering yourself to him completely, fully. If you want words to assist, it could be something like this, that you could pray to God, dear God, I acknowledge my sin and that I needed Jesus as my Savior. I believe he died in my place and I'm confessing in this moment my belief and my faith. I'm surrendering my will to yours. I'm putting my trust and my faith and my hope in you now and forevermore. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if you've prayed that, part of confessing with your mouth is letting other people know and and I would encourage you on that connect card that's gonna be turned in in just a moment that you'd write on there, I trusted Jesus. So that we can hear and receive that confession and rejoice with you and know that for you, this matter is settled once and for all. Father, thank you for your goodness in sending Jesus that we might have hope. Thank you for the words of Paul trying to get us to the basics of understanding what it means to believe, what is required of us to take the step of committing ourselves to you and walking with you. Lord, I thank you for each one here who has that faith established in their hearts. And Lord, I thank you for any here who have taken that step today. And I would pray that you might confirm that in their heart and mind and life that much more and that they would confess that, not just to us through a writing on a card, 
could confess it to others that they've come with or others that they know, others who are part of the fellowship, that we all might be encouraged together today with the move of your spirit in our midst. Lord, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the hope that is ours through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen, amen.